Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. This is our third week of our series, and uh, what a blessing it has been to journey uh, up to this point, and grateful uh, for the opportunity to jump into God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible, go into Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, this is the statement of Jesus or the entire chapter given in Matthew's Gospel to the apocalypse or what we call apocalyptic statements, apocalyptic literature, understanding the end of the age, the signs of the time. I've told you last week that Jesus was asked about 180 different questions uh, upwards, if you see repeating of a little over 300, and he answered straightforward about five of those. Uh, most of the others, he answered the question with a question. And uh, on the opposite side of that, you hear all kinds of churches preach sermon series about questions Jesus asked. I personally have never seen a series preached uh, on questions people have for Jesus, questions for Jesus, not questions Jesus asked, but questions that we can ask of him. And so we've spent the last two weeks asking two different questions, and today I want to ask the third question. Uh, I do want to say, too, I see a lot of ladies in the room, uh, not this Saturday, but next Saturday is our DP Ladies Day. It's going to be awesome, Saturday, October 2nd, and it's going to start at Gibbs Garden, but it's going to include a, a movie night here at the building, and so you can get signed up, ladies, uh, out at the uh, Next Steps table. Definitely do that today. It's coming up again 13 days from now. Matthew chapter 24 Verse 3, I'm going to read. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately, not in a public setting, and asked or said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming, and what is the sign of the end of the eon, age? Not the end of the world, though your King James might say that. The world will not end. Okay, so let's put that out there. The world will be changed. It is biblically incorrect to say the end of the world. Okay, there is no end of the world. The world will be changed. He said the end of the age, the end of the eon. Jesus, from this point forward, will now jump into what we call the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, perhaps, in Christian theology and history has been studied, and more has been written on this subject. And all kinds of contemplation and theologizing about this passage of Scripture. But I want you to notice specifically the three questions that the disciples ask of our Lord. Tell us when. Everybody say when. If I was a good Bible student, I would take a pen and there were some, some words that I would, I would circle in my Bible right here. When would be one of those. Then they said what. What will be the sign? Everybody say what. What shall be the sign? Everybody say the sign. Then the end, everybody say end, of, and then finally, the word world. Everybody say world. Now when you look at verse 3, these are important words. When, what, sign, end, world. When, what, sign, end, world. They said to Jesus privately, they bring him aside, hey, Jesus, when, when will these things happen? Now I just want to say from the outset here, when the disciples asked Jesus when. When you read the word when in Greek, it is very concrete. New Testament, of course, is written in Koine Greek. They're asking exactly when will this happen. Okay, And then they say, what shall be the sign? That Greek word what is this Greek word T, which literally means a specific, a sign of your coming. What they're not asking is for Jesus to respond with broad answers. They're not interested in broad strokes, okay? When the disciples are talking to our Lord, they're saying, what is going to be the clear indicator or sign that we should see that will welcome or communicate the sign of the end of the age, the sign of your coming? Exact, specific answers. Now, I'm, what, in the next few minutes, I'm going to do nothing other than tell you what the text means, okay? There's all kinds of commentary about this. I'm just going to define for you some words as we jump in. So they're asking for the specific what of the sign. This word sign in the Greek language, which you find in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, is a very clear word inside of Scripture. 
This word sign was the exact word used by Greeks and Romans for their signs on the road. If you were to get into your car and drive south down 75... Once you hit about Macon, you're going to begin to see how many miles it is until you hit the Florida state line. You know, people love Florida. I mean, it's crazy. People have been to Florida 78 times. They still stop on the side of 75 and take a picture in front of the sun. I mean, it's like, have you never seen a palm tree before? You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're still there. To this day, they're still taking signs. I mean, pictures at the sign, right? And so you'll get this little sign, a marker, because you're venturing to Florida, and it will become a signpost that tells you 222 miles until Florida. And then you go another 40 miles and 182 miles until you reach the state line of Florida. And then guess what happens? As you're venturing towards Florida, when you finally get to the Florida state line, you will have a huge sign off to the right of 75 that will alert you. You are no longer venturing towards Florida. You are inside the realm politically, right, as a state, the geopolitical area, state called Florida. When the disciples come to Jesus, they ask him, let me put it in our words, what are the clear prophetic markers on the journey to the end of the age? I want you, Jesus, to be specific and tell me, what will we see? What will we see? What are those markers? Another way we could say this or translate this is, how will we know we have crossed the line and are no longer journeying towards the end times, but we have now crossed the threshold and are in the end of the end times. So many people look at Christians today and they say, oh, those Christians are so gullible. They've been saying they're in the end times for 2,000 years. And I'm like, yes, you got it right. Because the Bible says we've been in end times for 2,000 years. Now, how, do, how much do we know if we're in the end of the end times? Well, we're going to talk about that today. But that's not gullible. That's what Jesus said. We are in a perverse generation from the time he instituted his kingdom until the time he died on a cross and was resurrected. We are biblically in the end times. Now, when the question is asked, the end of times, again, this is, again, not abolition. It means the wrap-up of time. It's this Greek word, pableta, not the end of the world. The world will never end. It, it's saying it will be changed. So they, they say, when will it happen and what will be the sign? Now, if you look with me, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus begins to share many different Signs. Oftentimes when we read this Olivet Discourse, people are like, oh, I know one of the signs of the end of time. It's Israel. And you are, Price is right, correct in saying that Israel is one of the signs. But it's not the only sign. What happens in Israel with obviously the, the reunion of it becoming a national state in 1948 and becoming a nation again, yes, that matters. But it's one of many signs. Jesus talks about wars. Jesus talks about rumors of wars. You know, one of the phrases Jesus gives us, he said, kingdom will rise against kingdom. Now, I just want to throw this out here. You'll see if, you, see if you, you kind of follow along with me. That word kingdom in Greek is very interesting the way Jesus uses this because he doesn't use basileia, a basileia, which we know is kingdom in Greek. Jesus uses a phrase here that's really interesting that literally means, okay, it, 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 it's, it's discovering or communicating and describing that there will come a time where political philosophies will try to squash out other political philosophies. I don't know if you guys have known any of times like that, lived in any times like that. When political ideologies or political groups will try to do everything they can to squash out other political groups... And they're trying to squash those political groups to literally describe, and you can read any Bible commentary here, what, he's, what Jesus is saying is he's describing unethical behavior among a political group. That's what he's saying. That the kingdom of this philosophy will try to squash the other philosophy. So Jesus now ventures into this list of explicit signs. And I just got to be honest with you. When he gives his first sign, he gives us a sign that we wouldn't often put at the first of the line. I don't think when we read this sign and list of signs, we would make this be, or we would know or understand this is the first sign. So he says, look at verse 4, take heed. Take heed in Greek there is such a strong charge from Jesus. What he's essentially saying is he's saying, look and listen. you got to imagine Jesus taking the disciples by the collar and shaking them violently and saying, lock your eyes on me. Listen to me. Take heed. 
And then the first sign he gives you, take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, we don't have to guess what this word deceive means. Can I talk to us for a moment? This is the Greek word planal. This is not the normal, what we call word in Koine Greek for deception. Now, here's the point. We don't have to guess what the word means. Say, why? Because the word is used many times by Jesus and many times by Paul. Also, the word is used in the intertestamental period by rabbis. The intertestamental period is the period between the close of Malachi to the transcription of Matthew. So that's a 400 years of silence. And in that 400 years, we have rabbis that use this word planal. And what that word planal means referred to a nation or when a nation, a leader, or a society as a whole that once walked on a well-known moral path now wants to deviate. That's what planal means. When a person, a leader, or a nation or society at large has walked on a what we call well-tested path of safety, it's been a path of refuge, has now veered off of that path and says, we're going to walk a new path. He said, let no one do that to you. Let no one planal you. Let no one deceive you. It's the same term, by the way. I'm just trying to give you the color, coloration here. This word planal in the first century is the same word used of an animal that had so lost its way, it could not make it back home anymore. It was so teetering on the edge of a treacherous cliff, it had so been so planaled, it had been so deceived, it couldn't make its way back home. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Jesus, privately, when will be the end of the age? What? will be the signs. What? T. Specific. Tell me, what are the signs of the age that tells us we're no longer venturing towards the end of the age, but we've crossed the threshold into the end of the end of the age? And Jesus essentially answers them and says, when deception enters in the human race, you will know you are no longer moving towards the end, but you have passed the barrier into the very end of the age. Now, that is what it means biblically. Now, what you want to do with that and how you want to interpret that, whether you want to be a person that says, oh, well, it was more deception in the 1940s with World War II and Adolf Hitler than there is now, that, that's not what my job is as a pastor. My job is to, to take the Scripture and, and open up the Scripture. He says, when deception has gripped humans, you know you're no longer journeying towards the end, but you have crossed the threshold of the end of the end. Now, this word planal by Paul is used in multiple places. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul used the word planal, and the King James does a fabulous job of translating this, called delusion. So planal is delusionary spirits. He says, Jesus says, when you are, you are understanding the end of the age, take heed, disciples, don't be fooled by delusionary times. That's what he's saying. Don't be fooled by delusionary moments. This is also used in 1 Thessalonians. When Paul is speaking, he uses the same word planal to communicate what he says, seducing spirits. The, the, the true translation here is delusionary spirits. Jesus, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus said, take heed when delusionary spirits are sent out into the earth. Don't be full. But in our day, as we look around and we attempt to try to divine, divinely call upon God and ask for God's insight and wisdom and discernment and make sense of these texts that are so complex and have been debated for 2,000 years, it's challenging. I want to bring before us as a congregation today what I consider to be very, very bright, shining moments and realities that we can look forward to at the end of the age. So, in the sixth Harry Potter book, there is a scene that might be one of the most confusing, 
bewildering moments any human can encounter in literature. And now that all the movies and books are out, right, and it's hard, hard to kind of capture the shock of reading it live when it first came out, and so many of you I know read it when it first came out, and some of you are like, wait, is this going to be a spoiler? Don't tell me right now, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I, I feel like this is now part of kind of our shared cultural knowledge for me to share this today. It's like Darth Vader being Luke's father, right? And if you're, if you're like, what? Yeah, I've got nothing to say, okay? Albus Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore, all right? Interesting, the wise sage of the Harry Potter series and Gandalf, the godfather, you know, Santa Claus and Nicolas Cage, they're all wrapped up into one, right? This one person. He has been severely weakened, severely weakened through a battle with evil Lord Voldemort's Death Eaters. And as the battle is ending, he is basically barely still standing. And a character in the series, Severus Snape, right? Severus Snape, who is a teacher at Hogwarts Castle and is also Harry's nemesis. Harry, who's the protagonist of the story. Harry's nemesis throughout the series is standing in front of him with his wand. And Dumbledore is completely vulnerable before him. Dumbledore is is just basically at his mercy. And you've always been a little unsure about Severus Snape. You're not quite sure which and where he's at in the whole reality, right? And you're not sure where his loyalties lie. You're not sure where he really wants you know, Harry to succeed or not succeed or where he's at in this process. And Dumbledore, in this scene, he makes eye contact with Severus Snape and he says, you remember, Severus, please. Severus, please. And Severus, in that moment, instead of helping him, he essentially aims his little wand at him and drops him, right? Falls off of the cliff, kills him with a curse. And when you read it or you watch it, it seems like the ultimate act of betrayal. As a good reader, it's a moment where evil triumphs over good and you think, you know what, all is lost. Until you read the next book and in the next book you learn that Professor Dumbledore had secretly confided to Severus Snape that he was dying of a slow and irreversible curse and that through his death he would grant unto Harry a power that Harry couldn't have as long as Dumbledore was still alive. It was a power that would defeat Lord Voldemort. So Dumbledore, essentially in the book, makes Snape promise that when the moment comes, Snape will let him die. So when he says, Severus, please, Severus, please let me die, suddenly the meaning of Dumbledore's plea is reversed and Dumbledore's death, it was not an act of chaos or betrayal, it was all according to plan. That's exactly what happens in Daniel 10, 11, 12, Matthew 24, and the book of Revelation. Many great stories, including the great redemptive story that you and I are a part of, they involve chapters where the characters go through something that at the time feels chaotic, at the time feels dangerous, it feels tedious, it feels tragic, only to later learn that it was all part of the plan. So if the Dumbledore metaphor didn't work for you, let me switch to Daniel LaRusso, okay? So I'm thinking of Daniel LaRusso's training at the hands of Mr. Miyagi, okay? Anybody seen Karate Kid? Please don't admit if you've not seen it, okay? It won't be good. The great karate kid, right? And when he's training, Luke, you know, or, or let's, let's take Star Wars, Luke, Luke's exile in the Dagobah system, or if you don't like that one, Lightning McQueen in Radiator Springs, okay? Does that one work for you? All right? So you think of, we've been in these, or, or let's just think the last few weeks, these weird strategies that were given in the last Olympics, all right? The commentator comes on, you're watching the you know, Olympics, and you're trying to cheer on the USA, and, and he says, hey, now, just because uh, so-and-so's in the seventh uh, of eight laps and our runner is still in 14th place doesn't actually mean she'll lose. No, this is all part of her weird plan to sprint past everyone at the last second, and she wants everyone to think that at this point in the race, she's been training and that she doesn't have the power to do it, and sure enough, it happens, right? Eighth lap, she turns on the jet burners, and she, like, is just wearing people out. And just so you know, I just want to make this statement. If I were an Olympian, I would never have the discipline to pursue that strategy, okay? I'd go out hot, 
And if I got ahead, if I got ahead in that first little deal, I'd try to stay as far ahead of everyone as long as I possibly could, okay? Which is probably reason why number 424, why I never made it as an Olympic athlete, okay? And coming in last place is the USA's Craig Mossgrove, who actually led for the first 4.7 seconds of the race, you know? But that 4.7 seconds would be it for me, right? But, but it's this tragic turn of events. And the point is that there are a lot of things, okay, that that turn out quite well, have sad, really confusing chapters, but they're all part of the plan. And the Daniel's message to us in the last of his book, in those three chapters, he says things are dark, he says things are about to get darker, but don't you despair, don't you become downcast, it's all according to the plan. Now, if you're with us about a month and a half ago, I preached out of Daniel 7 and 8. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. The road ahead, Antichrist, here far, uh, here now, far, and, and in the future. And, and, and in that, we did a really the uh, best job that I could in the 50 minutes that I had to begin to break down what happens in Daniel 7 and 8. This book, Daniel, is about shining the light of an uncommon hope in an increasingly dark world. When you read the book of Daniel, it's, make no mistake about it, the backdrop of Daniel's book is somber, it's heavy, and the world for Daniel for the foreseeable future is not going to get much better. It's actually going to get much worse. And so when Daniel's given these prophetic visions, okay, I know everyone today, especially in our world, tends to think that the world is gradually progressing towards a utopia. And even humanists believe that we're progressing towards a utopia where we have no more political or economic problems, where everyone lives in abundance and everyone lives in prosperity and is united in one global village. But that's not where Daniel says the world's going. That's not where it's going at all. Nor is it where Jesus says in Matthew 23 and 24, which we just read, says the world is headed, or what John tells us in the book of Revelation. The Bible writers consistently tell us that the world is going to get a lot worse before the world gets better. So let's be encouraged and let's close in prayer, okay? I'm just kidding, all right? I'm kidding. So Daniel chapter 10, if you have your Bible with me, I want you to look for a few moments at Daniel's good news, bad news, and let's connect it to this Olivet Discourse. Daniel chapter 10, these last three chapters of Daniel's book are his final visions. It's all that he's going to give. There's a lot of details in here, and I know some of you totally want to geek out on those details. All right, And we're going to touch on a few of those details, but we're going to focus mainly on the bigger point. And here's the bigger point. Why does Daniel tell us these things? Why is he telling us these visions? Can I read a quick quote from you from Martin Luther, the great reformer? I love what Martin Luther said about Daniel's visions here. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, Daniel concludes the record of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy, pointing to the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. Whoever wants to study them, that's us today, profitably, dare not focus his attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but seek comfort in the Savior Jesus Christ whom they portray and in the deliverance he brings from sin and its misery. I like that, Martin. That gives us a great basis by which to study the passage, to look at the visions. Because you see, listen church, if you listen in really closely, in the details of these prophecies, you'll hear the footsteps of Jesus as he begins to run through the corridors of history, coming first to a manger in Bethlehem, and then ultimately to the throne, what we call the throne of the ancient of days. You'll see Jesus in these visions. But let's look at bad news first, and then we'll go good news. Okay, here's bad news. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. You there with me? I'm reading from the CSB. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. And then I, Daniel, mourned for full three weeks. The message was so heavy that Daniel mourned for three full weeks. Overwhelmed. During that time, verse 3, I didn't eat any rich food, Daniel said. No meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put on any oil on my body. Now, church, you know it's bad when you're too overwhelmed to even rub doTERRA on at nighttime, okay? When you have put Young Living to the side, and you're not using your essential oils anymore, it is bad, okay? Daniel cannot even make it across the room to flip on his lavender diffuser at bedtime, okay? This is bad. Yes, these, are, these are bad moments. Verse 4. So an angel comes to comfort him. He puts a little dab of chamomile behind his ear. He flips on the lavender diffuser. and he begin, This is the angel. And he begins to diffuse 
or explain the meaning of this vision to him. Now, a lot of things as we read this vision in the second vision of Daniel overlap with the previous visions we've already preached about. In fact, all of the visions and dreams, I want you to know this, of Daniel, whether they're given to pagan kings or whether they're given to Daniel, they're about a series of world kingdoms that will rise. Each one of the world kingdoms is oppressive and hostile to the previous kingdom. So I told you a couple of weeks ago, after Babylon came Persia, after Persia okay, came Greece, after Greece came Rome, and then after Rome will come that fifth kingdom, what we call the king of the north, which we're going to look at today, called the kingdom of the Antichrist. Okay? And it will be increasingly hostile to each previous kingdom. So Daniel explains to us that in these certain elements of the first few kingdoms, they will give us a foretaste of what the final kingdom of the Antichrist will be like. So if we can understand these kingdoms, we'll understand a little bit about this kingdom. Greece, right? Persia, Rome. Now let's understand the kingdom of the Antichrist. So for example, let me give you an example. In Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8, We saw that Daniel prophesied that a ruthless king would arise out of Greece who would be particularly hostile towards God's people. You remember who I told you that was? His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was fulfilled about 300 years later after this prophecy. He came to power about 160 BC. And I showed you when we studied Daniel 7 and 8 that just like Daniel prophesied, he was particularly blasphemous towards God and the people of God. He's been called the Hitler of the Old Testament, Antiochus Epiphanes. He slaughtered in cold blood tens of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children. He desecrated the temple at about that 160 BC. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar, and then he forced the Jews to eat eat the pig flesh right there in the temple. He then committed what the Bible writers call the abomination that causes desolation because he set up a statue, Antiochus I'm speaking of, he set up a statue of himself in the Holy of Holies and he made the Jews bow down to it. Craig, I want to read about this. Okay, read about it in First and Second Maccabees. Okay, all the historical account in First and Second Maccabees you'll find right here. These, of course, were books written by Jews before Jesus is coming. These books contain a lot of helpful historical information, although they're not scripture. And I told you why they're not scripture. They are for the Roman Catholic Bible. You'll see them in First and Second Maccabees. So Daniel then explains that Antiochus Epiphanes was a type, was a prefiguring of a future world king. Who would be everything Antiochus was, but much worse. We now call him the Antichrist. And he begins to foreshadow that. I share that because the first part of Daniel chapter 10 is again about Antiochus Epiphanes. And Daniel is describing the devastation Antiochus is going to bring to the Jews. And then suddenly in verse 36 of chapter 11, if you're in chapter 11, look at verse 36. He's now going to shift, okay? And when he shifts, he switches from talking about Antiochus to prophesying about the Antichrist. So now he's no longer talking about this king. He's talking about a future king. Look at me. Look with me in verse, um, verse 36. He calls it a king from the future, a king uh, way into the future, a king from the north. Look at verse 36. Then this king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful. How long will he be successful, Craig? Until the time of wrath is completed. Because what has been decreed, everybody say decreed. This is going to be real good news in a minute. Will be accomplished. He will not, verse 37, show regard for any other God because he will magnify himself above all. Verse 38. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. He will, verse 39, deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Remember how I shared with you in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel says the Antichrist has the eyes of a man, but when you look at them, you see something behind his eyes that's not really human? That's what Daniel is saying here. Antichrist would be empowered by a foreign God. That foreign God has a name. It's S-A-T-A-N. He would be empowered by a foreign God, Satan, Diabolos, Lucifer. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. So in Daniel 7 and 8, Daniel said three things would characterize the the reign and rule of the Antichrist. And we see echoes of those down in these verses. Can I review for us real quick? What are the three things that Antichrist would do? Number one, he would devour much flesh. He would devour much flesh. All the slick talking of Antichrist, 
His aim is to destroy with hatred, with prejudice, with genocide, with slavery, with subjugation, with human trafficking, with the commoditization of the vulnerable, with abortion, with militarism. All of those are tools in the arsenal of the Antichrist to devour flesh. He wants people killed. He wants death to rule and reign. The second mark of the Antichrist is he would doubt God's word. Chapter 8, verse 25 says he publicly tries to undermine what the Scripture teaches about things like humanity, right? In fact, he would be empowered of Satan to do miracles. He would deceive people. He would try to deceive people in terms of sexuality and salvation. And he even uses that supernatural power to deceive them into believing it. Third thing that would happen with the Antichrist is he would exalt man. Verse 25 of chapter 8 tells us the first one he exalts, the first man he exalts is himself. The Antichrist, Satan. But then he tries to get people to do the same with themselves. To focus on themselves and to glory in their capabilities and to glory in their talents and to glory in their human accomplishments. He is, let's say it this way. Can we say it this way? The Antichrist is the ultimate humanist. The ultimate humanist. Okay? In the philosophical definition of the word. Now we saw that in chapter 7. And this is really, really important, church. Even though the Antichrist himself is not here yet, the spirit of Antichrist is already here. Look what uh, John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it already is the last hour. It already is. It's not something we're waiting for. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have already come. We can see the Antichrist at the world around us, at work in the world around us, devouring flesh. Even though we've made so many advancements as a human civilization in the last hundred years, folks, let's just be honest. The last hundred years have been the bloodiest century and year of all of human history. More people have been killed by genocide and war and abortion than any other century in history. He's at work in your life to destroy your flesh. Some of you, you walk in here today and I don't have to convince you of that. You see he's destroying your kids. He's destroying your marriage. He's going after anything good, godly, and virtuous in your life. He wants to destroy flesh. It's crazy that I, even in the 21st century, have to somehow convince people sometimes that God is trying to rescue people and the enemy wants to devour flesh. We shouldn't have to convince people of that anymore. He wants to destroy flesh. I don't have to persuade you of that. Through alcoholism through addiction, through pornography, through materialism, through narcissism. He's working hard to erode and destroy the foundation of everything good in your life. And he'll use whatever vulnerable area he can. Number two, he's, he's working to make you doubt God's word. It's why I've told you, some of you are like, oh, oh no, I'm just, I'm just questioning what the Bible says about sexuality. I'm just trying to find myself. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're dabbling with hell. You're not, you're, not, you're not dabbling or trying to construct about your view of sexuality. You are teetering on hell is what you're doing. You're doubting the truth of God's word. There's no other way to say it. No other way to say it lovingly to people. When you doubt God's word, the enemy's number one objective is to get doubt into your hearts. Where you que- Listen, let me say it this way, folks. Our enemy begins every attack by making you question God's word. Started with this Lucifer in the garden, and it happened with Jesus and his temptation. Hath God said? Did God really say? Every attack of the enemy starts with you doubting God's word. And thirdly, he's trying to work to get you to exalt yourself, to think that your agenda is the most important agenda, that you know best. Through these things as benign as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram reels and consumer driven commercials and leadership seminars, he's trying to get you to fixate on yourself. He whispers in your ear, you know what's best for your life. You must look out for you. They're not going to recognize you. In that, pe- that, that, that church is not going to recognize your gifts and abilities. They're not going to ever look. And, and No one else is looking out for you. You better, you better look out for you. You can only be happy when your kingdom and your will is done. And he whispers that to people. So I want to say, make no mistake about it, friends. The spirit of Antichrist is already here. And Daniel tells us that he employs the powers of the state... And he employs the powers or machines of culture and media to promote these things. He's basically in control of these things. Now, I want you to hear me. 
He's basically in control of politics and media. I did not say you can't be a Christian and operate in those realms. You should. It's just basically he leads all of those arenas. He's in control. He's the prince of the power of the air. He moves those agendas for his design. Yes, you should light a light there. Yes, you should be involved. Yes, you should try to infect that mountain of culture with the Christ-like thinking and presence. But here's the bad thing. The bad news is that things are only going to get worse as we get nearer the Antichrist coming. Daniel says at the beginning of chapter 12, look with me, verse 1. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. So the worst is yet to come. Now critics often say that evangelical Christians have a persecution complex. Okay, Meaning that we are always imagining everyone's out to get us. We Christians are always imagining everybody's out to come against us. And honestly, I'll just admit to you, that's a valid critique. Christians, especially in the West, we are, we are a little paranoid and a little bit overly sensitive. Okay? But, 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 but. We might be like that sometimes because we understand who's at work in the world and what his game is. And Daniel tells us, listen to me, let's be under no illusions persecution against Christians in the world is as high as it's ever been and it will likely get worse. Organization I follow called Open Doors. Open Doors is a fabulous ministry that does everything they can to help the persecuted church around the world. They say right now while we're in church this morning, there are 340 million Christians that are living in parts of the world right now this morning that experience high levels of persecution. Did you know that's the highest in history? Last year, 5,000 believers were martyred Now hear me, I'm not saying they were martyred and they were believers. They were martyred because they were believers. There's a lot of um, believers that get martyred, more than 5,000, that are not martyred because they're believers. We're talking about the ones that were specifically martyred because of their faith in Jesus. Did you know last year in 2020, 4,000 churches globally were burned and another 4,000 Christians were imprisoned without a chance for a free trial because of their faith. And even in our own country, can I just speak to America a moment? Where we supposedly have a guaranteed freedom of religion, we are slowly but steadily seeing the erosion of those things. And already, in some places, if you hold to what Scripture teaches about sexuality, or you hold to what Scripture teaches about gender, or you hold to what Scripture teaches about abortion, or the sanctity of life, or salvation, you'll be labeled as a bigot, and you will be canceled, or you will be fired altogether. So Dr. George Yancey, he's an African-American professor who's fabulous. I love reading his stuff. He he has taught uh, quite a a bit about overcoming racial racial strife, and he's written a new book called Anti-Christian, about anti-Christian discrimination in America. And he points out, I want you to hear me, he points out that 32% of all Americans identify theologically conservative Christians as their least favorite group in American society. Okay, so 30-something percent of Americans identify faithful, what we would call churchgoers, conservative Christians, as their nemesis. Now, liking them, catch this, less significantly, right, than other groups. By comparison, in his book, he said 31% of Americans identify Muslims that way. So what he's saying is right now in American culture, I will just quote it for you. So it's fair, I think they have it, to say that if we're concerned about anti-Muslim prejudice, and we should be, we should be at least aware of anti-Christian prejudice. In fact, it's higher in percentage. So Dr. Yancey documents with a pretty impressive compilation of statistics that being a professing Christian in America will hurt you significantly in the academic world, the journalistic world, the political world, the artistic world, the medical world, and increasingly even in the business world. So yes, we can be a little bit paranoid, but you'll forgive me if we see a trajectory that these things in Daniel begins to warn us about. And listen, I don't want to contribute to the conspiracy theories. Y'all know me, okay? You should know your pastor and, and Pastor Chad for the last... 15, 16 months, okay? We will not be caught into political cultural wars, okay? You can follow me on my social media to the very dying day. I will not be pulled into the left or right. I will be a prophetic witness in the middle, an alternate kingdom, 
a kingdom voice, okay? I'm just going to make that as clear as day. So I am not giving in to conspiracy theories in the least bit, but I want you to hear. I would say that the spirit of the enemy is every bit as much at work in QAnon as he is in the ACLU. I believe the spirit of Antichrist, the enemy, is at work in every culture-shaping institution trying to foster hate, doubt God's word, and ultimately exalt man. Every one of them. Every man-made institution to try to do all that he can to promote the agenda of the Antichrist. So make no mistake about it, parents. Hear me, and this is my plea. We are sending our kids into an increasingly hostile world, and we need to prepare them for that. We can't be content any longer in the American church with a thin layer of religiosity and raising up kids who don't cuss and don't have sex and know how to vote. Cute little songs for our children and saying little words that are platitudes for religion won't cut it in a world anymore. It won't cut it in the world that our kids are inheriting. We must, as parents, we must, as leaders, look at young people in the face and say, there is a king that is worth living for and he's worth dying for. There is a kingdom called the kingdom of Jesus Christ that's not cute and little platitudes. It, It requires you to give your life for it. You're going to never be applauded by a culture, even in the Bible Belt, for being faithful to the call of God. And that's okay. We need to look at those kids and say, man, we praise you for that. We honor you for that. That's the world we're living in. And it's going to increasingly grow hostile to anyone who claims the name of Jesus anyone who wants to claim to what we call absolute exclusive truth in God. Now I read all of this and I say, well no wonder Daniel was grieving. What a dark view of the future. And I want to say to us, we should grieve too. The world, generally speaking, is a tragic place where God's people suffer and and are sometimes tortured and slain again and again and again. It only get worse. Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus said in John 15, he said, be assured In the world, this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. And sometimes, church, we're in such a hurry to rejoice that we overlook the grief that some people are feeling. Some of you in this room, you're coming in this weekend and you are facing pressure at your job or maybe you are suffering from the scorn of friends for the sake of your godliness and your, your sphere of influence or maybe you're just suffering. And I just want to tell you, the world can be a dark place and we want to grieve with you. So I'm not trying to pass over your grief before we get to the celebration. We want to grieve with people. But you say, Pastor Craig, what's the good news? This is the worst sermon I have ever heard in my entire life. I get it. I get it. I want to bring out three things that are absolutely brilliant. And I don't mean brilliant in the way that we grab them. They're brilliant in the way that Daniel describes them. Here's the first thing. Suffering is limited. The suffering people are experiencing is limited. Can I tell you something, friend? If you're a believer, best news you'll hear all day. Suffering can be used by God, but guess what? It has an expiration date. (laughs) It is not what's most basic about your life and future. Suffering is limited. What stands out to me when I read these passages in Daniel 10 through 12 is is how sovereign God seems to be over all of it. Daniel drops little hints along the way. Look Look at chapter 11, verse 36, for example, where he's talking about the Antichrist. This is what he says in verse 36. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed, everybody say decreed, will be, watch this, accomplished. Till what has been decreed is accomplished. The time of wrath is completed What has been decreed is accomplished. This is all part of the plan. Though persecution is real, though persecution is painful, it has all been decreed by God. The time has been set and not an ounce more of it comes rather than what God has already intended. You don't experience an ounce more than what God has allowed to happen. It's like that terrible scene with Snape and Dumbledore. It looks bad, but it's all according to the plan. And one day, the meaning of these tragic events will be totally reversed. Is that good news today? And one of my favorite aspects of Daniel's vision is how specific God is with how long it'll last. Now, I want you for the next few moments to put on your nerd glasses. If you've never seen this before, you're about to be floored, okay? Some of you have seen this before, some of you haven't. So you're going to need to put on your nerd glasses with me just for a moment. And let's look at how specific 
God is in the scripture about how long this will last, okay? Go back to chapter nine, tighten your seatbelt for a moment, put on the nerd glasses. Verse 24, Daniel chapter nine. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Watch this. To bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Nerd glasses on. A week... In the Jewish language means a period of seven, a week. It could be seven days, or it could mean, as it does here, seven years. Okay, A week of years is seven years. So how many weeks of seven years are prophesied? Okay, Seventy. Okay, I want to do the math for you. They're going to follow along on the screen here. I'm a, I'm a sixth grade math teacher, so I'm just going to, be, I'm going to move into math mode for a minute, okay? So just look at my board, arrow students, okay? 70 times 7, 490 years. He makes very clearly. And what happens, Craig, at the end of that 70 weeks of seven years? Okay, well, let's read it. Rebellion will be brought to an end. A stop will be put to sin. Iniquity will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. All biblical prophecy will be fulfilled. And the most holy place will be anointed or restored. Craig, though, okay, when do the 490 weeks start, you ask? Great question. Look at verse 25, Daniel chapter 9. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Start the stopwatch. Y'all got it? From the issuing of the decree. Until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt. He's talking about it, it is Jerusalem. We will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So the clock starts ticking at the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Do you know when that happened? That decree was given by King Artaxerxes of Persia around 445 BC. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. King Artaxerxes said, go back, you can rebuild Jerusalem. From that date, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks is 49 years, seven sets of seven, which is roughly how long it takes to rebuild Jerusalem. Then 62 more seven-year periods pass after that. Now watch this, verse 26. After those 62 weeks plus the first seven, the anointed one will be cut off. So seven weeks and 62 weeks is 69 weeks. Then the anointed one will be cut off. 69 weeks of years... Let's put that math up there. 69 times 7 is 483 years. Pause. Using the Jewish custom of a 360-day year, not 365, 483 years after 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem would land us, I did the math for you, at 32 A.D., the date Jesus was crucified. That's when the anointed one was cut off. That's when the anointed one spent his life outside Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. God gave Daniel the exact date some 480 years before Jesus. Jesus would die. Clear. Clear as day in Scripture. That's Daniel's prophetic vision. Now, a God who can prophesy the details of something that specific is sovereign over it all. Wouldn't you agree? He, it's all part of the plan. Verse 26, then the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. When did that happen, by the way? That happened in 70 AD when the Romans redestroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And then watch this, verse 27, watch this. He will then, what? Make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering and the abomination of desolation will occur. Now, after the anointed one Another way of saying that is the Messiah, Jesus, is cut off. There's one more week of seven years. Now, there's two ways you can interpret this. I'm going to give you the way I interpret this. You, you interpret. One is that the last week of years are not literal years. That that week represents the final chapter of human history, which we are in now, and it's just stretched out for a long time. The second way to interpret that last week or seven days, and I believe the correct way, is that after the Messiah was cut off, which is 32 A.D., 
And the timeline was paused prophetically, and we are now in what we call a parenthetical period called the church age, where God has shifted the focus of his activity off of the nation of Israel over to the church, which is comprised mostly of Gentiles, non-Jews. But at the end of the time, when the Antichrist finally makes his debut, the forces will reshift back to Israel and will enter into the last 70th week, a seven-year period we call the Tribulation. The tribulation of the book of Daniel, excuse me, the book of Revelation is about Daniel's 70th week. You say, Craig, why do you prefer that interpretation? Well, I'm going to give you my two reasons why I prefer that second interpretation. First of all, the first 69 weeks were literal. It was roughly 483, 360-day years to when Jesus died. So why switch the last seven and make them an elastic metaphor? It just doesn't make sense to me. If those were literal times... Why aren't these literal times? Second, as I noted, the book of Revelation is all about the 70th week. And Revelation strongly implies that this is something in the future and not something that we're currently living in. Now, there's a few commentators, and I respect them, few commentators in America that argue that we are right now living in the midst of Revelation. But I just don't find their reasoning, when I read them, really compelling. I could be wrong. It's okay. This is not a first order of faith. If you think I'm wrong and you disagree, cool. You don't have to leave our church. It's not a first order of faith. Is not that significant. Yet at the same time, verse 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. For Daniel, your people would be the Jews. These 70 weeks focus on Israel. Well, right now, as I said, the focus of God's work is not on Israel. It's made up on the church, which is made up of mostly Gentiles. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11 that God has temporarily temporarily set aside his focus on Israel to build the church among the Gentiles. But he says one day in the future... Paul says God's going to resume his focus back on Israel. And when he does, more people will get saved in Israel than any previous chapter in human history. It's going to be awesome. I look forward to that day. But the point is that Daniel says those 70 weeks are about Israel. We live in an ellipsis right now. And there is another terrible week that's coming. What John the Revelator calls the period of tribulation. You say, well, well, Craig, when do we get to the encouraging part? Well, listen. The encouragement is in that word decreed. If God decrees with this amount of specificity, doesn't that show us that he is sovereign over all of it? And that what what means and what, what, what challenges that look like to us as bad news might one day actually be reversed to be good news. That Snape drops Dumbledore. It's okay, it's all a part of the plan. And that way means for us that when something feels dark and chaotic to me right now, I can still rest in it because say it with me, It's all a part of the plan. It's all a part of the plan. And one day, the terrible meaning of it will be reversed. It's not Dumbledore's tragic death, but part of his ultimate victory. So another way the psalmist has declared this, that in the coming kingdom, all sad things will become untrue. I heard a man years ago, Steve Saint, he spoke at a conference in 2005. Steve was the son of Nate Saint. He was... Nate Satan was one of five young missionaries brutally, brutally and tragically speared to death on the beaches of Ecuador in the 1950s. If you've ever read or seen the book, uh, End of the Spear. They had been trying to establish contact with this isolated tribe called the Alcas and in order to bring food supplies and eventually the gospel to them. But on January 8, 1956, they were deceived by the tribe, these five men, and they were murdered by them. Well, Steve was the son of one of these slain missionaries. And at this conference that he speaks at in 2005, some 50 years later, okay, he recounted as a young boy of how much he struggled with why God allowed that to happen. Why did God allow my dad to be murdered? Okay? But now he said 50 years later that God didn't just allow it to happen. God had planned it. I didn't say that. I said he said that. That's what his book said. God had planned it. What do you mean God had planned it? Steve said some 50 years later, we see that God used that incident to pave the way for that tribe of Alcas to be saved. After the murder, the wives of these five men went back to the tribe. The tribe was so moved by their generosity and the wives showing forgiveness and love that peace was established. And eventually, near the entire whole tribe came to faith. Several years later, in fact, Steve got to baptize the son, got to baptize the very man, Minkiah, who had put a spear into his father's heart. And that man, Steve, said at the conference, he became, Minkiah, like the grandfather of my kids, he became a beloved member of our family. And Steve said this at the conference, one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard. 
Okay, let me show you a picture of Steve Saint with Mankaya, by the way. This is a great, great picture. Steve Saint with Mankaya. You have that picture? This is Steve, and this is the, the man who killed his dad. This is the man who speared his dad. And now he's become the surrogate grandfather for his own kids. And Steve said this. This is his quote. Why is it that we want every chapter to be good when God promises only that in the last chapter he will make all the other chapters make sense? He's going to make every other chapter make sense because he's sovereign. So the suffering is limited. Number two, the resurrection is eternal. Daniel tells us after the time of untold suffering, he says, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since the nations came into being until that time. Look at verse 2, Daniel 12. But at that time, all your people and all who found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Listen to me, church. Just as a time of persecution is decreed, so is a resurrection. And as certain and as real as our suffering is, so is our resurrection. The Ancient of Days, who sits on his throne of will, saying, I have decreed it all, sits above it all, and will restore it all. He had the first word, and Jesus will have the last word. You didn't know the book of Daniel already gave to us the doctrine of resurrection. Did you know that? Did you know that was in his vision? Did you know that Daniel already talks about the book of life? Did you see the book of life just referred to right there? The Lamb's book of life where your name hopefully is written, my name is written. Our hope, friend, is not in success in this life. Listen to me. Our hope is not in perfect marriages. Our hope is not in, in prosperous businesses. Our hope is not in political power. Our hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Can I hear an amen? Our hope is in the certainty that Satan and sin and death are defeated. And just as hardship and persecution have been decreed, so the eternal reign of the anointed one, Jesus, who will renew and restore all things and let us rule and reign with him forever. But note, friend, that not everyone participates in this blessing. Look at verse 2 of Daniel 12. Many who sleep in the dust will wake. Many Many does not mean all. Verse 1 says it's only those whose names are written in the book will escape. The book of life, which is the most important book in all of history, contains a list of those and only those who've repented of their sins and turned to their Savior. I want to ask you, is your name in that book? If we were to look in that book, is your name? Is your first and last name? Would your name be in that book? One of the worst feelings in the world to me is when I show up at some hotel late at night to check in after traveling all day and I give my name, Mossgrove, and I'm expecting them to say, Mr. Mossgrove, your room is ready. And I did a lot of traveling for about five years of my life. And let me tell you, I stand there. The worst thing to hear is, Mr. Mossgrove, your name is not on the reservation list. And I, I want to fight, right? Especially after a long day of travel, right? Well, I, I, I know my assistant made the reservation, or I know we made this happen, but inside I'm like, did I? Did I really do it? Did I drop the ball? How tragic to find out that on the most important list ever compiled that your name is not on it. And whose names are in this book? It's church members, isn't it? No. People who live mostly good lives? No. It's those who've repented of their sins? And surrender control of their lives to Jesus and trusted Him to be their only hope of salvation. Those who've been born again. So has there ever been a time you've been born again? Yes, salvation is offered freely to all who receive it. No matter what you've done or where you come from. Jesus' death has paid for your sin, but you have to receive it. It's not yours until you receive it. You know what I read this week? Last year, 2020, Americans left over $3 billion unclaimed in gift cards. Three billion dollars of goods are left unclaimed, not touched by Americans, because they're still on the cards. But this is not three billion you've not claimed. This is your soul you've not claimed. An eternal soul. And then thirdly and finally, come ban. The power is available. Suffering is limited. Resurrection is certain and eternal, and the power is available. On this in-between time, between Daniel's 69th and 70th week, Jesus has inaugurated something brand new. And Daniel alludes to it in verse 3. Many of you, Daniel 12, 3 is like your favorite verse in the Bible. He said, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky. And those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. Jesus talked about it this way. He said, all authority has been given to me. You therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
Church, look at me. The power and the authority of the kingdom is here now, upon us now, to preach the gospel, to make disciples now. In other words, turn many to righteousness now. The full measure of the king may be coming in the future, but the power is here now. And repeatedly through the gospels, Jesus kept telling people, listen, you keep looking for the kingdom of God as if it's something in the future. No, I'm standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God is here now. The kingdom of God is locked away in you now. And the Holy Spirit Church is the power of God that's in us now. So in the midst of a dark world that's ruled by all kinds of spirit of antichrist, we are to be setting up little outposts of the kingdom like bright stars dotted on a black landscape and a black sky and with the power of the kingdom and the power of the king we're to preach the gospel and to set people free from their sin and to work with our hands to restore justice and to lift people up out of poverty and to break the chains of oppression on people's lives and promote peace our lives should give glimpses of that coming kingdom our lives should give glimpses to a world of a kingdom that's breaking in whose powers at work in us now in the Holy Spirit that's what it means to shine in exile that's what it means to shine in America. That's what it means to shine in Babylon. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness are like the stars forever and ever. That's who we are as a church. That's who he's called us to be. So here's the question. Are you ready to be a part of this movement? Look what Paul says in Titus 2 and 13. He says such a powerful statement. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the great appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So next slide. Imagine if our Christian view of the end time was actually centered more on preparing for Christ than the Antichrist. What if it was centered more on the mark of the Lamb than the mark of the beast? What if our eschatology was more centered on preparing for redeeming the earth rather than escaping the earth? What if our view of the end time was centered on hope rather than fear? We might just be the exact people Jesus wants us to be. We wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Suffering is limited. Resurrection is eternal. And listen, we have a kingdom. The power of God is available now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.